interesting. You seem to see one of two reactions. People tend to either gravitate away from God and away from faith in God, or they move deeper. They go deeper and stronger into their faith in God. They become more solid. Their character develops. Their hope becomes stronger in their lives. And so I want to know, how do you get there? How does that work? And I've had the opportunity this week to spend some time with two people who live day to day with a level of grief and suffering. One of them was Cindy Vance. We got to have coffee this week and talk about that. The other is my friend Seth Christensen, who you've heard me speak to as well, who is constantly dealing with an ongoing leukemia-like physical autoimmune disease that no one can seem to really get a handle on. And so he is struggling with the reality that his body doesn't do what it once could, and um, there's, there's highs and lows, and it's kind of an ongoing, painful, toilsome thing. Yet both of these people, Cindy and Seth, I would consider to be in that latter camp, those whose strength is being built through this time. So how? How does that work? So my goal is to address both the philosophical argument and, shall we say, the more pastoral side of the question. Not simply to answer the objection, but to move to the real question, the real question of suffering. How do I suffer well? Or what resources or strength does God, the God of the Bible, offer in the midst of that suffering? So first, let's look at that philosophical side, and I'll try to keep this more brief But the problem goes kind of like this, and it was vocalized first by David Hume, an 18th century philosopher. He wasn't the first to speak to this. In fact, it's been spoken to throughout all time in history. The the Bible itself speaks to this. It's the whole subject of the book of Job, for instance. But he was the first philosopher to make a concrete statement that the God of the Bible cannot exist because of pain and suffering and evil in the world. And it goes something like this. The biblical God is all-powerful and all-good, or all-loving. However, given the presence of evil and suffering, he may be all-powerful, but not good enough or loving enough to want to stop suffering and evil. Or he might be all-good and all-loving, but not powerful enough to do anything about it. But you can't have both. Therefore, the traditional God of the Bible cannot exist. Now, this argument has been around for a long time. And in the realm of philosophy, it's actually been discredited for quite a while. Uh, In fact, no one in the field of philosophy, supposedly, from what I heard, has actually recapitulated that statement since 1982. Yet, it keeps coming up. It comes up again and again in uh, the media, in journalism. Um, If you remember a few weeks ago when we were discussing the question of hell, I sort of argued a bit with uh, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. But I remember when his book came out, he was interviewed. There was an interview. I think we even showed it in church to illustrate this very point. And the journalist, you know, he was going on the air to talk about his book. But the earthquake and tsunami in Japan had just happened. So the news commentator, the journalist, instantly, the first thing he says has nothing to do with this book, but is instead, tsunami in Japan. So, Rob, is God all-powerful but not loving enough to do something about it, or is he all-loving but not powerful enough to do anything about it? And it totally threw him off guard, and he's like, well, you know, and just starts floundering in, in his seat right there. It's still very much alive in our minds, 
even though it's kind of been dealt with because it comes up again and again. The counter-argument goes something like this. Evil and suffering are not evidence against the existence of God. First of all, because there's no biblical claim that because of God, there wouldn't be suffering. There's, there's no place in the Bible that says, if God is in your life, or if you follow the rules, or if you pray enough, or if you have faith in Jesus, suffering will decrease in your life. It's not there. So to argue that the presence of suffering and evil actually invalidates the existence of God is arguing against a claim that is never made in the first place. So that's one way to, to argue against it. But there's also a problem with the argument itself that A, a good and powerful God would not allow such senseless and meaningless evil in the world or suffering. B, the world is full of meaningless suffering and evil. Therefore, C, there cannot be a good and powerful God. Well, the, the problem is mostly with premise B. It assumes that the one who is making that argument has a perspective to be able to say what is good or what is meaningless and senseless. In other words, just because we can't comprehend the point behind our suffering doesn't mean that there isn't one. For example, you might have a carpenter who gets hurt on the job, he can't use his hands anymore, so he's wallowing for months in his self-pity and just, you know, what, what's the purpose of this suffering? Why did this happen to me? This is all I had. This is all I wanted. This is where my dreams were located. This is my bread and butter. This is how I made a living. Why would God take this away? I can't see any sense in it. But say he goes to the ER for that injury and he meets the most beautiful nurse he's ever seen, the love of his life. And they fall in love and they get married and months down the road and he's like, there was a purpose in that suffering. There was a reason for that evil. Well, what's, what's the difference? The difference is that he could see it. He could pinpoint it. He could point to it. It was there. It made sense in his mind. But what about when we can't see it? Does that mean that there isn't a point? So from a purely philosophical perspective... This is where the objection breaks down. That in order to be able to state that the God of the Bible cannot exist because there is meaningless evil and suffering in the world, you have to be claiming to be able to see from a higher enlightened perspective that there is in fact no meaning or purpose we're seeing. For instance, I think of the, the four-year-old little boy who goes to preschool with my daughter a year and a half ago. Um, he was a perfectly normal, rambunctious little kid. Um, I remember doing a photo shoot for their family, and almost a month after we did that, for no reason that anyone can pinpoint, he began having seizures. And so now he has roughly 115 to 150 or so seizures every day. Nobody knows why. They can't find an answer, and they can't find a treatment that works, and they're watching him as, as his body is, is beginning to... to be affected by the weight of that, and his brain is starting to be wearied by that, and the parents are helpless to do anything about it. And so we say, God, what's the point of that? Where, where's the reason for this? How can you say, Mike, that there's a justifiable purpose behind that? And my answer is, honestly, with great difficulty. There are times when I look around at the injustices that seem to make no sense, and it is a struggle to trust God through those times. 
But I submit to you that the alternative is not actually any better. This picks up where Brian left off last week. Brian was talking about the reconciliation between faith and science. And he was contrasting a theistic worldview versus a materialistic worldview. And he said he ended it by saying, if you have a strictly materialistic worldview, you don't have any hope. There's no offer of hope there. In other words, suppose you decide, I can't abide in a God who would allow this to happen. So you leave Christianity. You leave your faith behind. Well, you haven't actually solved the problem. The problem's still there. In fact, you're now actually faced with an even bigger problem. That a strictly material view proclaims that there is no evil in the first place. There's nothing wrong with your suffering. It's just the way things work. You need to get over it. C.S. Lewis wrote that the problem of pain and evil and suffering was one of his reasons for being an atheist. The universe seems too cruel and unjust for there to be a God. But one day it occurred to him to ask, where had I gotten this idea that the universe is cruel and unjust in the first place? If this is the only universe and I have nothing else to compare it with, then where did I get this idea if this is all there is? Cruelty, violence, and death are just the way things are. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that my feelings are just subjective, evolutionary, social constructions. But if I want to say that things really are right and wrong, and that evil and injustice are still evil and unjust, whether I feel like they are or not. Well, if it's just natural, then my outrage has no warrant. Everything is just relative, and I have to get rid of my outrage. But if there really is a problem with the natural world, then there is now an argument for the existence of God. The existence of suffering and evil were not evidence against the God of the Bible for C.S. Lewis, but for him. If the brutality of the world, the natural world, is simply the world operating as it's supposed to, why do we have this instinctive gut reaction that there is something wrong in the first place? Okay, well, what explanation does the Bible give them? What point could there be? What are, where is the answer? And interestingly enough, the Bible is very much not silent in that question. It's all over the place. What's the point of suffering and evil? But the answer that is given is often not the one we expect. Sometimes we get to see the reason. The story of Joseph, for example. A young boy sold into slavery by his older brothers, spends a good part of his life as a servant, spends another good part of his life in jail, in prison, unjustly accused. Wonder what he was thinking throughout all that time. And then through a, a series of events, he rises up in power as second in command under Pharaoh himself over all of Egypt. And when his brothers come to Egypt fleeing a famine because God has shown Joseph how to survive it. The brothers realize it's Joseph, and they say, oh man, we're dead. But Joseph responds by saying, what God intended, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. In other words, he was able to see that the whole time God had a plan to be able to rescue his family out of famine and starvation, and so that the promise of 
God renewing all the nations, healing the nations of the world through that family would go forward through the events happening in Joseph's life. He was able to see it. But more often, God seems to respond, not with an answer, but another question. God, why are you allowing such senseless evil and suffering? And the answer he gives is, will you trust me with this? Will you trust me? Do you know who I am, and will you trust me? This is certainly the case with the book of Job. The book starts out with God and Satan having a conversation. God says, have you concerted my servant Job, how he's righteous in so many ways? And Satan says, no, no, no. The only reason Job follows you is because you've given him so many good material things. You take that all away, and Job will curse you to your face. God says, okay, try it. And he withdraws a level of protection from the enemy at that point. Job gets it all. He gets natural disaster, calamity, the death of his family in one fell swoop. He, gets, um, he loses his health. He loses all of his material possessions. He loses everyone he loves. And as he's sitting there in sackcloth and ashes, you get to laboriously read through 30-something chapters of just trying to figure out why. And God never tells him. He never tells him why. We know why. God and Satan had a conversation. I can discredit Job before you through pain and suffering. God says, I'll actually do the very opposite for Job through pain and suffering. And Job's friends are sitting around and they're having this deep conversation. Maybe it's because there's sin in your life, Job. Or maybe it's because you need to worship a different way. Or maybe, and they've got all these solutions, the things he needs to do. And at the end of the day, there's no solution. His friends are wrong. But finally, God shows up in a whirlwind and shows this incredible vision of his creation. Shows what kind of a God he is. The things he's made. What he's about. The life that he gives. The things that he's in control of. And Job repents of ever doubting, and God restores him everything he had and more and blesses him abundantly. He vindicates him. What's the message? Job never knows why he went through that ordeal. But the readers know why. God uses that suffering to accomplish the exact opposite of Satan's goal in his life. And there's three points from a, a professor named Joel Wingo that are drawn from Job. One, he says, the point of the book is to show that God is worthy of my trust and worship, whether he blesses me or not. Two, I need to be very careful not to give simplistic answers to suffering. Suffering is not proof of a person's sinfulness, and prosperity is not evidence of a person's righteousness. There is such a thing as undeserved suffering. The Lord himself says Job was blameless. Three, I always need to remember that I am not all-knowing and all-wise, but the Lord is. I am not all-powerful and all-sovereign, but the Lord is. I never will be sufficient for my needs, but he always has been, is, and always will be. As a created, finite, and contingent being, I am not in a position to judge whether or not God is just. God responds by saying, this is who I am. You may not always understand my ways, but will you trust me? 
What assurance then do we get from the Bible that we can trust him? What do we have? And the main two that I'll point to is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the assurances he gives. The cross, that God himself did not stand aloof to our suffering to just see how we'd get through it. Instead, he entered right into our pain alongside of us. He became human and suffered along with us. He suffered in our place to pay for our sin, to take the judgment that we deserve, and therefore, someday, he'll be able to end evil and suffering without ending us. That's the dilemma, because we know we're all part of the problem. He did not stand aloof and watch human evil just abound. He got involved. And therefore, you may not know the reason for your pain and suffering, but you can know what the reason isn't. It isn't that God doesn't love you. Because he went through the worst suffering the world could throw at him, the worst evil anyone could endure. And the test was this, will this separate the Son of God from his love for us? Would he go through that for you? And the answer is, he endured all the way to the end. So if he went through that for you, then your bad day cannot separate you from his love. Your sin cannot separate you from his love. And no suffering that we endure today is evidence against his love. So we can know this, that God loves us, even in the midst of suffering. And resurrection, that someday God will, in fact, end suffering and evil completely. That every tear will be wiped from every eye. There's a hope of restoration and redemption of our life that is being ripped away and stolen and lost that will make the life that is restored to us that much better. I remember when my wife was giving birth to Lydia almost two years ago, our fourth daughter. It was the, the easiest birth for her to go through, if birth can be called easy. It can't, but of all the four. Uh, there was a period of time after she gave birth that they couldn't contain the bleeding that was happening, and she lost a lot of blood. And so I'm sitting there, nervously watching as her face gets whiter, as she gets colder, and as the life is just draining out of her, and they can't do anything about it. And when you go through that, now, before that, I appreciate my wife. I love my wife. I know there's something there. But in the day-to-day walk of life. I can take that for granted. I can grumble a bit here and there and so on. But when what you love is being stripped away slowly, you realize what you have. You realize there's a connection there that goes deeper, that there's, there's, a, there's a oneness, there's a unity that you didn't know maybe existed or you didn't feel it at the time. And so when they got control of that, the relief was so great that it was like having her back again, and the renewal of having her back again made the reality of that love so much better for feeling like I might lose it. Resurrection, I believe, will be like that. It's a life restored to us in a physical resurrected body as Jesus is raised physically from the dead. That what is being stripped away and being lost will make so much more sense through the way that we love and enjoy and appreciate it, having lost it, now having it back for eternity. 
So those are the things that we can cling to, but how do we apply that? And so I'm going to speak to where Seth and Cindy spoke to me this week. For Seth, what lit him up was our suffering has meaning because it is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What does that mean? How do we share in Christ's sufferings? I want to take a step back, and I want to go a little deeper with you. Because we could ask, hey, you know, a lot of people, we, you know, I like to scratch everybody's itch a little bit here. There's some things that I say that people are like, man, I didn't get that. And some people were like, whoa, that was amazing and so on. But the, the Bible is so deeply profound. But if you're just looking for a surface level, you know, just give me something to make me feel better in the midst of my suffering. Sorry, let me tell you what got Seth excited. After having a bad week of appointments where he was hoping for some kind of an answer, here's a procedure we can do. Here's a medicine we can give you. They said, there's nothing we can do for this. So he was wrestling that week. But he walked out with me from my office having studied this stuff. And when we saw Brian Nelson walking down into the youth wing downstairs, he yells out, he says, Brian, are we glowing? Brian's like, are you glowing? And, and, you know, Seth has on his mind, and Moses comes down from seeing God on Mount Sinai, and his face is glowing, and he's it's like, I feel like we've just been in the face of God. You know, I, are we glowing today? Because this stuff gets him particularly excited. But here's a guy who's suffering, who's saying, I feel like I'm glowing today. So let me, let me take a step back with you. Genesis 1. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Formlessness, emptiness, darkness. The next six days are God victoriously overcoming formlessness, emptiness, and darkness, starting by bringing light. And then in day one through three, he creates forms. Night and day, skies, oceans, Land separated out from the waters. And then on day four through six, in parallel with day one through three, he fills those forms with life. The sun and the moon, the birds and the fish to fill the skies and the seas, and all manner of living animals, creeping things that walk on the earth and so on in day six. Fills the forms with his life. Here's what we can know about God from the first six days of creation. That God is a God who fills where there's emptiness, who forms where there's formlessness, and gives light where there's darkness. What is suffering but the reversal of that? Suffering is chaos and disorder where there should be order. It's stripping away life where there should be life. And it's increased darkness and confusion where there should be light. So right off the bat, we know something about God, that this is the goal, this is the plan, and this is what was intended all along. Form out of formlessness, life out of emptiness, and light in darkness. He creates human beings. It says that he formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him, filled him with the breath in his nostrils and gave him life. He creates male and female and names them 
human and life. Adam, man, human. Eve, life. Form, filling. These are big theological terms, but you're going to see them all over the Old and New Testament. Forming and filling, forming and filling, forming and filling. That's what God is about. Finishes the six days of creation and says, now you take it from here. Fill the earth and subdue it. Take sand and mold it and burn it so it becomes glass and has a form and then fill that form with water that can be carried places or wine that can be the life of the party or, or life-giving substances. Do something with the world out of everything I have made. Take this lump of clay, make it into something that will benefit people and give life. Okay? Forming, filling, gets down to human beings, says you take it from here. So what did we do? We decided that we didn't trust God and we would rather look to a source of life in something other than God himself. We decided to fill ourselves with things that are perishable instead. And this resulted in pain and suffering in the world. So fast forward with me. Keep that imagery in your mind. Forming, filling. I could do a whole sermon series on male and female of this picture of the, the, the mother, the woman, life-giving. Um, and, and male, this form factor and how they complement each other and so on. But for now, hold that picture in your mind because Paul says that the church is the bride of Christ. The filling of Christ. The life of Christ on earth as he is in heaven. He says in Ephesians 1, 23 and 24, that he put all things under his feet, God did, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the life that fills the form, the body of Christ on earth. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, fills up our emptiness with his life. And then we, his people, fill up his body as the bride of Christ, the life and fullness, becoming a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus to the world. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, form, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, suffered, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself, emptied himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ, and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Might have misquoted that. I didn't read it. 
Through his suffering, Christ emptied himself of any claim of status or rights that he held, and as a result, he was filled, resurrected, exalted above every name, as the firstborn of many brothers. And we are told to have that mind about us, to empty ourselves. It might be hard or painful at times to empty ourselves. It might require some suffering here and there so that we can be filled with his life and fill others with that life as well. Colossians 1.24 is the specific verse that Seth latched onto this week. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. His body, that is, the church. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And many people debate this, thinking that he's talking about how somehow Jesus' sufferings weren't enough to pay for our sins. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying the body of Christ on earth, the church, is a form. It's the life. It's the water. It's the bride. As he is the bridegroom. What Paul is saying is that there's purpose in my suffering. There's meaning in my suffering. That as I encounter death, as Jesus encountered death, I can do it in a certain way, as a witness. Knowing that my suffering has meaning because it becomes Christ's suffering in my own flesh. Knowing that he went through death and suffering first and offered a way into life. And so I, I suffer with hope, knowing I have that life. And in the way I suffer, I began to fill bit by bit What's still lacking in the body of Christ, the picture of the gospel, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, visible to the world in the church through the way we suffer and the life that we have even in the midst of that suffer with every little bit of suffering that strips away the old, the garbage, the flesh, and leaves us clinging to life, that which is real and good and hopeful and solid. We fill up the body of Christ in our suffering. We become a picture, and that gives us purpose. That makes us glow. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 12 says it this way. We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. But not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the form, in the body, the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is what God offers you. 
When you treasure the life that he fills you with, when what you treasure is the death and resurrection of Jesus as the ultimate gift that paid for your sin and gave you life and offers you his love through the Holy Spirit that cannot be crushed even though I am just a jar of clay. When you have that treasure that God emptied himself and suffered for you and was raised for your life, then like Job, your suffering cannot discredit you, crush you, nor destroy you, but instead becomes Christ's own sufferings at work in you, so that his life may be manifested through you by the love that he pours into you through the Holy Spirit. And that's where Cindy picks it up. She said, well, I suppose for a while I might have asked, why me? Then she says, I said, why not me? How can I trust God? Well, she said, I already knew him. I had a relationship with God, so the trust was already there, and I knew his character. You have to have that in order to get through tribulation, she said. And there were many times where the preacher would preach on suffering and she'd just walk out the door. There were times when it wasn't easy. But she says, God has to be your rock. You have to practice being in his word and in his presence. Otherwise, she said, I can't endure it. If I persevere in Christ, he gives me what I need to get through it, she said. Three daughters, one husband, two healthy kids left. Suffering empties us of life. If you don't have him as your treasure, she said, then when you are emptied, you are left with just that, emptiness. You're just empty. Romans 5, 2 through 5, was what she claimed over her own life. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us Work that backwards a bit. Where do you get this sure, solid sense of God's love in your heart has been poured into you through the Holy Spirit? Your faith has to undergo some testing. There's a character that God is developing in us, a character development, a strengthening, a refining that can endure hard things. Where do you get that? You have to endure some things. What do you have to endure? You have to suffer some things. And she said, how else can you strengthen your faith if you don't go through some hard things in life? How else would I have what I have today, essentially she's saying, if these things had not occurred in my life? And she said, people look at me kind of weird. And they say like, oh, you're just kind of ignoring the grieving process here. She's like, I've been through this four times. I know the grieving process. But I don't look to the psychological grieving process for hope. I look to Jesus and there's a difference in how it affects you when you have him. And she wasn't faking it. It wasn't a pat answer. She wasn't just trying to put on a face and just, well, I'm not really going to tell my pastor that I'm in turmoil inside and angry at God. No. There's a joy in her, and it was real. 
She shared that days before Mark's diagnosis, she had been in her ladies' Bible study, and she shared, she said, you know, I feel like God is going to test my faith soon, but I don't know how. Three days later, she knew how. She said, to grow in faith, you have to endure something. It's the arena. It's the workout gym. It's the place where you build your character and your hope, as an athlete does. How else do you get there? Where do you build your solidity? The problem is we want control. We don't want to let go. We think we're entitled. We don't want to give up our rights. God wants us to trust him. I think we've packaged Christianity poorly in our culture. Seth put it that way this week. We have to start seeing the world differently. We have to start seeing our place in the world differently. We have to start walking alongside people who suffer better. We have to start suffering better. We have to start seeing God's purpose in suffering as we have this opportunity to fill up the body of Christ as a picture of Jesus on earth as in heaven, to be a witness in that way. We have to start looking for hope even though there's no belittling the pain. There's no downplaying it or watering it down. or It doesn't go away. I'm going to close with Romans 8, 16 through 30. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with either longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Mother's Day, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness and the word for weakness there has the correlation with sickness kind of weakness, infirmity kind of weakness, suffering kind of weakness. The cross was the ultimate proclamation of weakness. King of the Jews, humiliated on a cross. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought. God, should I pray that you'll end the suffering? Should I pray for your will to be done? I'm scared of praying for that. 
you know, we don't always know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You have a treasure in you, a Spirit in you, advocating for you, praying for you, interceding for you, if you're willing to give your suffering to him. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be conformed, form, filled with form, into the image of his Son, right? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Suffering glory. So today, if you're dealing with it, if you're struggling with it, I want you to know that we're here for you. And I want you to hear the words of God Asking you a question, do you believe that I am who I say I am? Do you believe what my ultimate hope is for all creation? Form, not chaos and disorder. Life, not emptiness. Will you trust me with your suffering? Will you hand it over to me? Will you be emptied as Christ was emptied? Will you let me become your treasure? Will you be filled up with my life? Will you become a living picture of the cross and resurrection of Jesus for all to see filling up the body of Christ in the way you suffer and hope at the same time? I know it hurts. I know it because I've been through worse than you can possibly imagine. I know exactly how much it hurts. I'm with you. There's nothing you can go through that I don't understand. Because I've been there. Will you trust me with your suffering? And if you don't have that rock, if you don't have that gift and that life that only he can give, if you're still in the realm of philosophical arguments, my one question for you is that when you suffer, not if, but when, what will you be left with? What do you have that is sure and solid and unshakable? What will you have? Emptiness. That is all. God wants to give you life. He says, I've come that you would have life and have it more abundantly. But we have to be willing to be emptied first. So let's pray. God, I know that uh, we are not called to just go diving headlong into suffering. Yay! You know, down water slide of death here. But uh, Lord, you call us to be willing to trust you. That ultimately, your truest desire for your people is blessing, forming, filling, light. That's what you want for your people. And you give that blessing so abundantly and so freely. 
So we just want to pause and thank you for that because every one of us has experienced that. But God, it's easy when we have been so blessed to doubt you when our treasures are taken away, when we start to feel pain, when we start to question things. And admittedly, Lord, it's difficult sometimes to believe that there could be any purpose behind the things that we're going through. And so, God, right now, I just pray for the strength of Jesus Christ through your Holy Spirit to come up underneath those who are hanging on by a thread and give them the strength they need to hold on to hope. I pray that they'd see your whole heart, not just their doubts. And I pray that you would give them the ability to let go and trust you with their life, with their suffering that they might be a glowing picture of the gospel, the cross and resurrection of Jesus for the world to see. I pray you'd light us all up, Lord, with that life. It's in Jesus' name I pray.